If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 27th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight, we talked to former Cirque du Soleil star Joe Putignano about how the same dedication that can create an Olympic athlete can also create a homeless drug addict. And we take the IMRU Gayback Machine to the 1998 premiere of a sitcom called Will and Grace. We celebrate next month's New Orleans Mardi Gras with a story on the history of the Crescent City's gay drag balls. And we revisit last year's winning Hear Me Out senior story from David Park Epstein. But first, The Honest Tea. Our first story is going to come to us from the Washington Post by Emily Wax Thibodeau and Samantha Schmidt, and they are talking about South Dakota bill restricting medical treatment for transgender youth, which passed its first major vote. Yes, this is a proposal to ban doctors from prescribing hormones or performing sex reassignment surgery for transgender youth in South Dakota, which cleared, like you said, a committee vote on Wednesday, January 22nd, 2020, the first state to take action on a wave of bills that restrict medical interventions affecting young people's gender expression. And according to this article, it's likely not the last state. This seems to be a bellwether for other states to make moves against the transgender community. And it should be noted that when we talk about prescribing hormones or performing sex reassignment surgery, we are also talking in this specific case about puberty blockers. Well, you know, more than half a dozen states State houses are considering bills that would penalize medical professionals, and one at least would penalize parents. Now, these states include South Carolina, Colorado, Florida, Oklahoma, Missouri. They've introduced bills, and those planning to introduce bills are Kentucky, Georgia, and Texas. Now, in particular in South Dakota, they would punish doctors who treat patients under 16 with a maximum of one-year prison time and a fine of up to $2,000. That's a pretty harsh penalty for treating people according to medical guidelines. It should be noted that, and this bill started out with making the punishment of treating people under the age of 18, and it was moved down to the age of 16, and the penalty was also going to be a felony as opposed to a misdemeanor. 
They're doing it in what they would consider baby steps, I guess. Right. So you can get something into the legislature. You can get something codified into law and then make moves from there as Exactly. Well. Now, conservative lawmakers argue that they are protecting vulnerable children who may be experimenting with their identity from making life-altering changes to their bodies, a characterization that advocates for transgender use call misinformed and dangerous. Now, South Dakota Rep. Fred Deutsch, who sponsored the bill in that state, said that hormone treatment and sex reassignment surgery aren't health care and should be considered criminal acts that are deeply harmful for children, which runs contrary to most medical opinion. To quote him, now he introduced a bill because the solution for, quote unquote, children's identification with the opposite sex isn't to poison their bodies with mega doses of the wrong hormones to chemically or surgically castrate and sterilize them or to remove healthy breasts and reproductive organs. Now, who is Fred Deutsch? Who is he? He is a 62-year-old white Catholic male married to a woman, father of four. His hometown is Florence, South Dakota. Both Fred Deutsch and his wife Kathleen are chiropractors. Chiropractors. He graduated from Kalamazoo College in 1979 and obtained a chiropractic degree from Northwestern Health Sciences University in 1983, which is located in Bloomington, Minnesota. So would you call him an expert on transgender youth? I would say that he is not an expert on transgender youth or the use of hormone therapy. And this is not his first attempt to affect the transgender youth, not only in South Dakota, but nationwide. Now, he did gain nationwide attention in February 2016 when he introduced a bill in the state legislature of South Dakota to make it illegal for public school students to use a bathroom, a shower room, or locker room that doesn't match their sex. So this isn't his first attempt. No. And now that law was ultimately vetoed by the governor, but it did help to build momentum for a lot of other bathroom bills across the country. So South Dakota is seen as a place where these things get started, and other states pick them up from there. Now, taking a look at the other side of this that's being argued, Roger Tellinghusen, former attorney general of South Dakota, argued that treatments for transgender youth are a private matter for doctors, parents, and the transgender youth, and that the debate would distract from important issues on the state. He is quoted as saying, I know this particular issue will be decided in the courts. I implore you not to make South Dakota the test case again, which goes back to speaking about the bathroom bills. So there is some reason and some logic and some care and some some caution within that state. Yes. And now... Within the legislature. Within the say. legislature, yes. And one of the things that is difficult within the transgender community points back to what Deutsch said here is that he began considering the bill last spring after he met people on Twitter who said they formally identified as transgender and were hurting and suffering as a result of the treatments. Now, there is a small group of detransitioners, people who started to transition and decided not to, generally that is because society treats them so bad. And I don't want to say why other people have and haven't done, but most of the stories revolve around society treated me so poorly that I couldn't stick with my transition. And now they're struggling in other ways because of that. But it is a small percentage of people who actually transition. You know, it does Make my mind kind of wonders as to, as to how this is happening. You know, is if South Dakota is being used as a testing ground, perhaps. You know, who's targeting? Who's he? Who who is targeting a representative like like Fred Deutsch? 
there in South Dakota. What is happening around and who is he communicating with and what is being done so that they test the waters here to see if you drop that pebble into the water, what are those waves going to do? Who are they going to affect from that point outward? Well, and let's talk a little bit about that because this is not just a South Dakota movement. Deutsch said he consulted with groups such as the Liberty Council and the Kelsey Coalition as he was drafting this bill. And in October, he attended the Summit on Protecting Children from Sexualization Conference in Washington, which was hosted by the Conservative Heritage Foundation and featured discussion of similar efforts criminalizing transgender care in other states. So this is not just coming from him. This is being directed by a national lobbying group as well. So there you go. He's being lobbied. He's got a consortium of ultra-conservative voices in his ear and as that, he's planning all of this. Yes, and that's why you can see that the bill shares language with many other states' proposed legislation. This isn't coming out of nowhere. This isn't homegrown. This is something that's being directed by other groups as well. But speaking of legislation, not all of the legislation that, that is being proposed right now throughout our country is of a negative nature. We do have some progress that we are reporting, specifically with New Jersey. What's the news in New Jersey right now? Well, New Jersey has finally banned the gay and transgender panic defenses. It's the ninth state to ban this controversial legal strategy. And basically what it's saying is that you can't murder someone and then use the excuse of, I didn't know they were transgender. I didn't know they were gay. I didn't know they were man. I didn't know. I didn't know is basically what it says. And this particular news story is coming to us from NBCNews.com by Tim Fitzsimmons, uh, January 22nd, 2020. Now, New Jersey is joining Hawaii, California, Nevada, Illinois, New York, Connecticut, Maine, and Rhode Island. Can I ask you, do all of those states have anything in common? Well, I did a little research. When I said that New Jersey was the ninth state to join this and making into law, banning the gay and transgender panic defense as a legal defense, protecting people who commit murder against members of our community, I did a little research and I found this to be true. Hawaii, Governor David Ige, Democrat. California, Governor Gavin Newsom, Democrat. Nevada, Governor Steve Sisolak, Democrat. Illinois, Governor J.B. Pritzker, Democrat. New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, Democrat. Connecticut, Governor Ned Lamont, Democrat. Maine, Governor Janet Mills, Democrat. Rhode Island, Governor Gina Raimondo, Democrat. And New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, you can say it with me, Democrat. Democrat. So when someone says that there is no difference between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, what are your thoughts on that? I would have to say that the evidence is telling. The evidence is what it is. There's not much to read into it because it's right there for us to, to see that one party is attacking our communities and one party is seeking to keep us safe from a legal defense. And let me rephrase what I said earlier to be a little bit more clear. These panic defenses seek to partially or completely excuse crimes such as murder and assault on the grounds that the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity is to blame for the defendant's violent reaction. Right. And this isn't conjecture. This isn't commentary. This isn't preaching to the choir. This is fact. When you see it laid out as clear as day as that is, LGBTQI plus community, the facts are pretty clear in terms of what party in our current two-party system is an advocate, an ally for our community, and which one is not. And it's telling that 
While California was the first to bar the practice in 2014, there's been momentum since then. Six states have banned the practice of the panic defense in the past year. And the LGBT bar, an LGBTQ legal nonprofit, has been on the forefront of getting these defenses banned across the country. And it's just a legal strategy that has never had a place in our courts to say that somebody is to blame for their own assault or murder. Well, it has been used in the past. Successfully. Yes, it has. Now, Governor Phil Murphy, again, Democrat, said the law promotes full equality for all of our residents. But to expand on what you're saying, and I've mentioned this in, in the past, the most famous panic defense case that I can recall was the Twinkie defense. The one that was used in the San Francisco case of Dan White, who murdered Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone. White's defense was that he suffered diminished capacity as a result of his depression. His change in diet from healthful foods to Twinkies and other sugary foods was said to be a symptom of depression. Now, White's attorney did not argue that Twinkies were the cause of White's actions, but that the consumption was symptomatic of an underlying depression. And White was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, which is a lesser crime than murder. Which tells you something about how our community has been perceived in the past and by many still today in the present, is that violence done against us is less real than violence done against somebody who is not a member of the LGBTQI community. Right, because the, the Twinkie defense was led to his diminished capacity, and which accelerated his depression and caused him to have a diminished reasoning in terms of why he killed these individuals. And that was used as a legitimate reason for lessening the charge that was issued against him. Now, voluntary manslaughter requires the same intent as murder. The charge of murder is reduced to manslaughter when the defendant's culpability culpability for the crime is negated or mitigated by adequate provocation. So the fact that, you know, that Harvey Milk was gay and the fact that George Moscone, the mayor, was embracing of this individual a city supervisor as part of the city council was reason enough right. to fuel his passion. And reason enough to get him from a murder charge down to a voluntary manslaughter. Now, you may recall one of the best-known uses of the panic defense was in the murder trial of the killing of Matthew Shepard. We've talked about his parents as being fabulous, amazing allies for our community since then. Leading advocates. Leading advocates. The lawyers for Aaron McKinney, one of the two men charged, argued that he was driven to a temporary state of insanity after Shepard allegedly made a sexual advance on him. Now... We talked about there being some momentum behind these bills and some more states passing these. You won't be surprised to know that in 2018, Democratic members of Congress introduced a bill that would ban gay and trans panic defenses in federal court. While the bill passed in the House, it did not advance in the Senate after Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did not bring it up for a vote. Wow. We still have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do, and it's nice to see that some things are going in a positive way. We just need to keep educating. We need to keep putting ourselves out there. And it's scary and it's hard, but it's one of those things that that's where the momentum comes from, and that's how we make a difference. And by staying engaged, staying informed, talking to each other, talking about what's going on, this is how we progress. This is how we move forward. 
Yes, and I hope that our listeners will talk about these stories with their friends, with their allies, with people who they don't know exactly where they sit on the fence on some of these things, because the education is not out there. People don't believe that the gay and transgender panic defense is real. They don't believe that somebody can be responsible for their own murder, their own assault. And I just saw a video last night of a woman assaulted in New York City on a subway because she's trans. And it's horrific. I need people... We need people, the community needs people, to continue to have these conversations with others. We keep speaking out. Our voices will not be silenced. And that's The Honest Tea. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. An eighth-cent postage stamp for Willa Cather, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Credited as one of the most widely read female authors of the 20th century, Willa Cather achieved recognition for her novels, A Frontier Life on the Great Plains. In 1923, she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her book, One of Ours, written a year earlier. Cather was also honored by the U.S. Postal Service with an eight-cent commemorative stamp designed by Mark English. The stamp, part of the American Arts issue, contains a profile of Cather with a pioneer family in a covered wagon in the background. It was first issued on September 20th, 1973 in Cather's hometown of Red Cloud, Nebraska. Cather's most significant friendships were with women, most notably editor Edith Lewis, with whom she lived for 39 years until Cather's death in 1947. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Sodan Naboule, in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Randall Kleiser, director of Grease, Blue Lagoon, White Fang, and It's My Party. And you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Oh, look, I can accept the fact that he's gay, but why does he have to slip a ring on this guy's finger so the whole world will know? Why did you marry George? We loved each other. We wanted to make a lifetime commitment, wanted everybody to know. That's what Doug and Clayton want, too. Everyone wants someone to grow old with, and shouldn't everyone have that chance? (sighs) Sophia, I think I see what you're getting at. I don't think you do. Blanche, will you marry me? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sophia. I need to go talk to them. Fine, but I'll need an answer. I'm not going to wait for you forever. (laughs) Thank you for being a friend. Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. These days, Joe Putignano is a registered nurse. But in the old days, he was simultaneously a Broadway performer, a world-class athlete, a fitness model, and a heroin junkie. It's a journey he detailed in his memoir, Acrobatic, and a story he shared with IMRU and Steve Pride. Joe Perignano is an acrobat. He's performed on Broadway and at the Metropolitan Opera House. He was the original crystal man, bringing light and the spark of life to mankind. In Cirque du Soleil's Totem, he's a sexy fitness model. The boy next door with a million-dollar smile and a body to die for. And technically, he did die. Because just a few years ago, Cho was a homeless junkie. 
My name is Joe Putignano, and I am a gymnast contortionist with Cirque du Soleil and the author of Acrobatics. Around the age of eight, I was watching the 1984 Olympics, and I saw gymnastics for the very first time, and I knew in that moment that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was my one religious moment where I felt like God came in and said, this is who you're supposed to be. And I immediately took the cushions off the couch and started flipping. I was trying to mimic exactly what I saw. I couldn't, of course. I intuitively knew what to do, but I just needed kind of the guidance to get there. And a month later, I learned my first backflip, and my parents put me in class. And after that, I took off, you know, like a match to gasoline, and it was just literally became my passion, my everything. I love to talk about gymnastics in the early days because that was when the passion was so exciting. And I love to talk about how the passion changed later <laughs> in my life into addiction, which is obsession. What were your parents like? They were consumed with their own alcoholism. And since I was the baby, they were kind of done raising kids. They didn't give me what I guess a child needed at that point. And they thought I was okay because of gymnastics. Like I was doing this thing I was really good at and passionate. And I was kind of a good, quiet boy. So they didn't think I needed any parenting, which in hindsight, we all could see that I really needed some tools at life. But, you know, I love them. When did your addictions begin? Around 15. My progression was very textbook. I started smoking pot and then uh, tried acid. And then it was that whole 90s rave thing in Boston, which was extremely exciting for me because it was so opposite of gymnastics. It's actually when I first discovered I was gay. Or I should say accepted I was gay. And the rave world, to me, it, you know, it was like a fantasy where it was like heaven crashed into the earth. And gymnastics was so clean, cut, disciplined that this was just the polar opposite. And I, I fell in love with it. So the rave scene definitely introduced me to Crystal and Kay and all the club drugs. And then ultimately I went to Coke and had a problem with that and then had really bad problem with prescription drugs. And I was kicked out of college twice and sent to rehab. I lost my grants, and I ended up homeless. I thought there was something wrong with me, and there was. I was definitely sick, but I couldn't name it. I couldn't understand there was this desperation inside of me, this urgency. In 12-step recovery, we call it a God-sized hole. That's a good description, and drugs at the time seemed to fill that. It seemed to make me feel complete. So when I was faced with mundane things or going to college or, you know, being a good human being, I couldn't because the addiction was so consuming. And of course, when one's high, they're not going to do the most healthiest things or, or make great judgments or choices. My addiction in college was actually worse than my heroin addiction. I know that sounds odd, but I was able to control heroin a little bit more because I had learned the longer you do drugs, the more you become better at becoming a functioning addict. And I know that's kind of an oxymoron to say a functioning heroin addict, but it becomes medicinal. You learn how to get away with it. The job of an addict in the end becomes how to keep this feeling, do whatever I can to keep it, 
and make believe and make the rest of the world think that I'm actually not on anything. I could admit what I was doing wasn't good. I, you know, I'd been arrested and all these things. Like it, I had the things in life that one could definitely say you have a problem with drugs and alcohol happening, car accidents and homelessness and uh, overdoses. But the acceptance of actually admitting that this is what I was would mean that I would have to do something about it. So if you don't admit it, then you can kind of live in that state of denial. How did heroin make you feel? Heroin is a painkiller. If someone's in a lot of pain, it's an excellent drug. And what I mean by that, it's not a physical pain. We're human beings. We have a lot of internal pain. We have a lot of psychological pain. If for someone who is suffering from that and, and takes heroin, which makes them feel euphoric and numb, as if they're on fire on the inside, they never, ever want to let go of something like that. And for me, I had damaged my life so much from previous drugs and, and from the lifestyle of addiction that once I got to heroin, it was as if God was holding me. And I never, ever wanted him to let me go. When I was high on heroin, I felt safe. I felt protected. I felt loved. I felt cared for. And those are the things that I didn't feel in life. So once I started using this, it seemed like the solution to life. Like, shouldn't one feel better? Is that so wrong? And I would say, no, it's not. It's okay. And people should feel better. Unfortunately, with addiction, especially mine, to keep an addiction going, you're destroying not only your own life, but the lives of those who love you. And then you have to do uh, criminal things to keep a very expensive addiction going, which, of course, I had to do. So, yeah, addiction is the hottest and most difficult full-time job that you can never quit. <laughs> Heroin, in fact, killed you. Two cardiac deaths, which meant my heart stopped. That was not enough to get me sober. I actually was, uh, I think, 19 or 20, so I was very arrogant in my invincible God years. And I thought I beat death. Look at me. Look how strong I am. I, even this can't kill me. Why were you so unhappy? I don't know. I'm not special. I'm not unique. I'm not some incredible person. I'm just a human, and we all have suffering. What I chose to do with my suffering was destructive, though I thought it was going to save me, but I really hated myself for not making it to the Olympics because that was my destiny. It's what I thought I was going to do, so I felt like a failure every day for the rest of my life. I hated myself for being gay, and I didn't have really good coping tools for life. Transitioning from homeless junkie back to working acrobat, you continued using. When I discovered gymnastics movement, a lot of dancers can relate to this. When they move, they're on fire. There's a lightning inside of them. And then I switched to drugs, which gave me a similar feeling, got sober, and then went back to the origin of my euphoria, which was gymnastics. You would think that would be enough. You would think the disease would be... Uh, satisfied. For me, it wasn't because I was already an addict. And I'll never forget, I was performing at the Metropolitan Opera House. I was doing Turandot and the lead soprano, Andrea Gruber, was a recovering opiate addict. And here I was, I had just shot up. I tumbled on stage. And then I would listen to her aria and pray to God that her voice would just 
heal me somehow, would get me clean. And those moments I'll never forget because I was absolute desperation sitting there in front of the, the audience thinking that this power would somehow heal me and save me, and it couldn't. Then I knew I was in trouble. When your art can't save you, who can? Well, what did make you stop? Oh, here's the deal with mental illnesses and addictions. What I don't think people understand is that they're progressive and they're fatal. And this is both mental illness and addiction. If you don't treat it, it actually gets worse over the years. I could see this in my own life, and I knew this just from talking to so many therapists throughout my life. And I was terrified of being the 50-year-old guy who was still shooting up. That was the thought that said, this is as good as life will ever be right now at this moment. You, $20, a syringe and a spoon. This is Christmas. This is Thanksgiving. This is your family. This is your love. Do you want more? Of course I did. I just couldn't do it. And at that point, I believed I was way too sick to recover. Before, I didn't think I had a problem. And now I thought my problem was too severe to actually get clean. When I went to 12-step, I was like, these people are just, you know, light users in comparison to what I did. But that's the arrogance of Joe <laughs> and the arrogance of addiction and ego. Of course, lots of them use like I did. People do every day, right now. It was that thought along with this tiny flicker inside of me, this flame, this spark of life would not extinguish and it's the worst feeling to want to kill it, but to have hope not die. It's so much easier to surrender, you know, fully. It wouldn't. So that coupled with the thought of growing old as an addict was just like, you have got to give everything you have to get better. And I did. How long have you been sober? I'll have eight years on March 25th, hopefully, if I stay sober till then. Hopefully. So it's still a struggle. It's not a struggle where I think I'm going to just shoot up. But yeah, life is difficult. Life is difficult for everyone. And it's the behavior that is attached to addiction. The first two years of sobriety, I held on for dear life, not to use heroin. Every day it was, it was very difficult, which is Really, my message out there to anyone with an addiction is to not give up because I didn't just get clean overnight. I was in 12-step and rehabs from age 19 to 29 failing. So if you're out there and you are suffering and you, you are like me and you can't do it, just don't give up. Don't give up. If you have a pulse and a heartbeat, you have a chance. This has been a conversation with Joe Pudignano, author of Acrobatic, a contortionist, Heroin Romance. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. One of the things I found most poignant about this story is that he felt called by God to do what he was doing and that pursuit of perfection that we often find in athletes can lead to other more dangerous pursuits. Well, 
he did mention that his parents were alcoholics and I can identify with that. My father was an alcoholic and that, that idea that it is inherent in your DNA and can be a part of who you are was pretty much evident with how he went from that same dedication and sort of addictive kind of a dedication to gymnastics to being a heroin addict. As we wind down the final season of the iconic sitcom Will and Grace, we were reminded that before they premiered on September 21st, 1998, IMRU was there. So tonight, we get in our gay back machine for a trip to their set just weeks before the debut. Loser, found. Oh. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, he goes to the chair. On a small soundstage in Studio City, a new sitcom called Will and Grace is being taped. By now, you've probably already heard about it or even seen an episode. So, what's the big deal? It's just another NBC sitcom on Monday night, right? Yes and no. In the lesbian and gay community, its debut has been eagerly anticipated as it brings the first post-Ellen sign of gay life on the small screen. It's also a slick, sophisticated comedy about the gay-straight dynamic. Will is gay, Grace is straight, and Will's friend Jack is very gay. Hey, Rumi! (laughs) Jack, you, you can't move in tonight. What? Grace is very upset. I told her she could stay here tonight. You you move in tomorrow. Okay, okay? that's interesting. You'd think maybe you could have told me this, oh, I don't know, before I packed up my entire life. (laughs) You don't understand. Grace has had a really... What's in the hat box? Your tiara? (laughs) What, Guapo? He made a funny. Shut up, Will. (laughs) I just slept all the way over here from the east side, and you know how much Guapo hates riding a taxi. Hey, take it easy, Jack. Sound just like your mother. <gasps> Crossing the line. Okay, you nasty, bitter, lonely, balding man. I don't need this crap from you, Will. You know what? I just don't need it. What time tomorrow? Eight is fine. Jack is played by actor Sean P. Hayes, and this season he has the distinction of being one of the few openly gay actors playing an openly gay character in a sitcom. But he makes it clear this doesn't make him the new Ellen. I'm not Ellen because I don't have breasts, but, uh, no, 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 Ellen is one of the funniest people I've ever seen in my life. She makes me pee in my pants, but... As her show and our show is a little different, she tried to educate, I think, a little more than, or a lot more than this show. This show does not try to educate at all. It's purely to entertain. It's not sticky. It's a totally different sitcom. Uh, I think the gay issue of, of the sitcom is not even addressed unless it's brought up. So every episode is not about being gay. Uh, if, if it's brought up, then we acknowledge it, but it's definitely not shoving anything down anybody's throat. Recently, I met with the creators and executive producers of Will and Grace, David Cohen, who's straight, and Max Munchnik, who's gay. They've been friends since high school and also produced Boston Common and were writers for The Dennis Miller Show, Hearts of Fire, and Dream On. Cohen told me a bit about the premise of Will and Grace. It originally started, I guess, with the question that was raised... Um, can a man and a woman ever really have, ever really just be friends? 
without sex getting in the way? What, what's the nature of, of platonic love now, and is it achievable and is it attainable? And it seems to me that this is, this is the kind of relationship between a gay man and a straight woman where that, that's, that's most pervasive, you know, that, that, where that is possible. I ask if casting a straight actor, Eric McCormick, in the role of Will makes a difference in the public's acceptance of a gay lead character. I don't know. I I really don't know. All I can say is it had it had absolutely nothing to do with the choice. I mean, we see, you see, it never does. I mean, you realize when you, you know when you go through the casting process that you sim- your des- your goal is simply to find the best person for the role, and and that it it would be a luxury to say. Hey, we need an actor who who should be straight, or, or or you know, we need a gay actor to play a gay part, or a straight actor. It's like you don't have that luxury. There's usually one, maybe two people you think of who could do the part. But if it helps, I mean, because as as businessmen, obviously, our our goal is to get as many people as possible interested into in this entertainment uh, program, and if it helps uh, people out there uh, to buy into the show. Great. Great. That's just a fortunate byproduct. A great deal of the show's humor comes from the relationship between Will and his flamboyant friend Jack. And some early media reports were critical of the -the over-the-top betrayal of a gay man. I think that that the character of Jack is, is a gay character that possibly people are more familiar with. Um, and now, uh, all of a sudden, that's that's being called a, um, a stereotype. When in fact, if you if you really look inside this character, uh, which is just actually watching the show, he, he's not a stereotype in that he's he's well, not a stereotype I, I, in that in that there are a lot of people we know who are a lot like Jack. I, I think it's actually very sort of reflexive, kind of a knee-jerk response by a critic to say that it's simplistic. It's like an intelligent southerner on on a show who is just called dumb merely because he has a southern accent you know it's like oh we hear the southern accent we understand it quacks like a southerner ergo it must be dumb the character is very bright and and he and he's traveling in in a circle and in a world that that he he gets the better of at all times so here, here here's a man calling his man friend a girl here's a here's a guy who occasionally you know who, who if he sings occasionally or once actually i think sings a show tune or twice and therefore, he's a stereotype. Well, a lot of guys we know do that. Will and Grace's director is James Burroughs, and he was quoted in The Advocate as saying that Sean Hayes' Jack could be the next Kramer or Urkel. I ask Munchnik and Cohen, is America ready for a gay Urkel? I don't know. That actually is a very frightening image, isn't it? Um, I don't think a gay guy would ever wear his pants up that high. Munchnik and Cohen say their gay lead character, Will Truman, won't find romance right away, but he won't end up a pseudo-queer like Matt on Melrose Place. For Pride on Screen, this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. After three seasons of the reboot, we're going to be saying a final farewell to Will and Grace. I don't see it coming back for a third time, but what a wonderful opportunity for this generation of LGBTQI plus youth and all of those in the community who didn't get a chance to enjoy it the first time around to see what a groundbreaking sitcom it was. And that Ellen, she set the landscape for the possibility of a show like Will and Grace, but Will and Grace made us just normal. And I also want to point out that Sean wasn't out at the very beginning. I did an episode in the third season, 
And he was not at that time. So I think it was well into first run of the show till he actually was comfortable with being an out gay actor in Hollywood. So Steve really got a scoop early on, but wasn't able to share that until just recently, I believe. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Edna St. Vincent Millay's stamp coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On July 10, 1981, the U.S. Postal Service issued an 18-cent commemorative stamp honoring poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. The first day issue took place in Austerlitz, New York, where Millay's farmstead, Steepletop, is located. The image of Millay on the stamp, designed by Glenora Case Richards, was painted on a piece of old ivory and then mounted in a gold frame. Issued as part of the American Poet Literary Arts series, it was printed in panes of 50 stamps. Millay was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1923. Openly bisexual, Millay celebrated the bohemian lifestyle she led in Greenwich Village in the early 1920s. Her later works made a big shift with descriptions of free and cavalier female sexuality. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Sodana Boule, in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out loud and proud since 1974. Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. With Fat Tuesday quickly approaching, we're reminded that the gay men of New Orleans created a vast and fantastic culture of wildly popular drag balls starting in the late 1950s. It was documented in several books and the film The Sons of Tennessee Williams. Steve Pride shares the 411. To be a gay activist before Stonewall took balls. And during Mardi Gras in New Orleans, those balls were pretty fancy. My name is Tim Wolf, and I'm director of the Sons of Tennessee Williams. My name is Albert Carey, and I'm one of the subjects in the Sons of Tennessee Williams. What's the film about? I like to say that the film is about the first public gay culture in the U.S. because it's almost one of the most groundbreaking aspects to the story. People lived in seclusion. The Mattachine Society was operating under drawn shades and fear of being identified. And this movie's about... Gay Mardi Gras, 50 years ago, beginning in New Orleans, and all of the different civil rights that uh, it brought to gay Americans first in New Orleans. And these civil rights pioneers, as I consider them to be, they were party throwers, but they were civil rights pioneers. I started in 1970 is when my first year in the club. After a disastrous love affair, I needed new friends, and I was told to come to this party, and I met members of the crew of Armenius, and they invited me to join, and I did. I'm an architect, and the guy who was putting on the ball at the time says, oh, good, you're an architect. You can do the sets for the ball. What was it like to be a gay man back then? I had been out a few years earlier than that. I'm from actually come of age of the 60s, and the bars were always in danger of being raided, always, and police would send cute undercover cops into the bars in the hopes of 
and trapping young men to take them home. And once you did, I mean, if you ever invited them home, his partner was waiting for you outside, and they'd both beat you up and then drag you off to jail. And then worst of all, the next day, your name would be in the paper in a column that the Times-Picayune published every day called Attempted Crimes Against Nature. So that was very scary because that would mean you would lose everything. If your name was in that column, you could kiss your job and your family goodbye. And, I mean, everybody in New Orleans read that column. So <laughs> it was very scary. I was lucky enough never to be entrapped like that. I came close at times. It was just a scary time for us. I was in raids, but somehow I never got dragged off to jail as so many other people were. The film mentions that in those days, it was important for a bar to have a mixture of gay men and lesbians. That's really how we broke down the dancing barriers. The lesbians and the gay men would all go out on the floor and dance together, and they really couldn't tell who was dancing with whom. That was the days when, you know, the things like the frug and all became popular, where you didn't dance with partners. You just stood there and started and jumped around. So... As long as there were girls on the dance floor, the police couldn't arrest you. One of the great things about the balls was if you weren't in it, you were in a tuxedo and you had a date. And after the ball, you could dance with your date. You could dance to Johnny Mathis singing Chances Are or something very romantic. So people stayed after the ball just really to dance because we had no other outlet for dancing in the city of New Orleans without going to jail. Did the police ever raid the balls? The very first one that went public was raided, and everybody was hauled off to jail. And um, one of the owners of one of the gay bars, Miss Dixie, got everybody out of jail. She took all her money out of her safe and got people out of jail. But 96 people were arrested in that raid, and their names were all in the paper. So that's when gay people had to decide, how do you keep from being raided? The answer was you do what straight Mardi Gras clubs do. You get a charter from the state of Louisiana as a bona fide Mardi Gras organization. And then with the charters, we were free of police harassment because now we were a legal organization that could not be raided. Unless, of course, you broke some law like some sort of sexual thing going, which none of the balls ever had anything like that. It was strictly costuming and fun. But that's how we got around all of that. And eventually, we went from having halls that held 300 people that were, frankly, owned by African-American labor unions. They were the only ones who would rent to us. And then, as it became more popular, we expanded. And eventually, like Tim says, we had several thousand people attending these things, which means there were a lot of straight people coming to the balls. So that's what broke the barriers, having huge numbers of people coming to see the balls. The first crew was called the Crew of Yuga. It was founded in 1959. They called it the Crew of Yuga so that the initials would be KY. This was just a group of uptown gentlemen that decided to copy the format and traditions of a carnival ball, the idea of electing a queen. And they existed pretty much in, in private homes until the 1962 ball, where they had the nerve to go out and, and rent a, basically a daycare center at night to put on their drag ball, and that was the one that was raided. But they didn't have a charter or anything. It was just a group of people who went out and rented a hall. Albert, what do you think of today's gay community? They don't understand what we went through, but they benefit from it. And I'm glad to see that. I'm glad to see the young people of today living a free life, children coming out earlier, 
and recognizing that they have things to offer and not be afraid all the time, not have people bash them just because they're gay. They stand up more, I think. I think they're brave, the young people today. But I think they got that way because of other people who went before them. But I never thought we would see adoption and marriage. I never thought we'd see marriage, and that's really thrilling. This has been a conversation with documentarian Tim Wolf and from the crew of Arminius, Albert Carey. The Sons of Tennessee Williams is a first-run features release. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I think we got thrown right back into the gay pack machine, <laughs> going back to the 1950s. You know, my very first experience, and only experience to this date, was uh, in the 1990s, I believe, in New Orleans around Halloween, and it was one of those drag balls. Interesting. You know, one of the things I found really engaging about this story is the ability to celebrate identity when newspapers are publishing names of people who are engaging in acts against nature. But to be able to go out there and celebrate who you are in a space like this is amazing, especially be at this time. It was amazing. And speaking of acts against nature, I was a centaur walking around the streets of New Orleans to the location for where the actual ball was. I had a total sense of freedom. I probably should have been a little bit more aware of my surroundings, but there really was a sense of freedom and the ability to be in such a culturally diverse city, such a rich history, and to be a part of that history with one of these drag balls. It was wonderful. Well, I would hop in the gay back machine just to see that costume. You got it. Last October, IMRU partnered with former Advocate Magazine editor Ann Stockwell and the Senior Services Department of the LA LGBT Center to produce a senior storytelling competition called Hear Me Out. Here's the winner. The title of my story is The Magic of the Moon and the Freedom to Love. It's 1966. Three years before Stonewall, the magic of the moon brought me Michael, my first love. We were just 16. I remember him first in the locker room of the gym. Michael's face was not what I first saw. I saw his back with the deep bruise in the shape of a lash. I knew that bruise. My father hit me, too, a belt to the back. Three years before Stonewall, I knew the shame beaten into us because of the secret we shared. We wanted to hold another boy and love him in our arms, a boy like us who would end our pain and heal our shame with his love. And so it would be for Michael and me. We fled to the sea to be free to love. Three years before Stonewall, when we were only 16. I remember our bed, our first night in the old gay hotel on Snake Alley in Atlantic City, one block from the Atlantic Ocean. We were only 16. Moonlight comes through the window, and I remember your arms, Michael. My hand moves down your belly toward the dream that lives between your legs. 
We were only 16, driving to the seashore, from high school, to the gay hotel that shows porn of blonde boys on a beach in California. And everyone is old but us. Old men, some naked, sit in the lobby smoking. And we're 16. Fugitives from the world of parents, driven to the ocean by the tug in our bellies. And I can't wait to have him lying next to me. The desk clerk knows we're too young, gives us the room anyway. No driver's license asked to check our age. A double bed, a white cotton blanket, and Michael in his white cotton underpants, moonlight on his belly. My teenage hand trembles like the sea, pulled by the tide of his hard love, hard in his underpants. My fingers touch his belly in Atlantic City, a block off the boardwalk on Forbidden Snake Alley where everyone knows the queers go. We were sixteen fugitives from the law, hard dreams of love and freedom alive between our thighs. Life isn't a Hollywood movie, and love stories don't always have perfect endings. It was three years before Stonewall. Michael and me... We were just 16. We never got married. We never grew old side by side. Instead, I went away to college in Pennsylvania. Michael left town to join the army and disappeared into a military base in Texas. But our love and our freedom has never left me. Here I am, after all telling you about us after all these years. He's still alive inside me. And so is the gift he gave me in the moonlight. Now, I put my hand on my heart, that place that knew only pain. It's healed. No bruise, no wound. No shame. Now, there's magic, and there's moonlight, and the freedom to love. I'm David. Thanks for listening. No one can forget their first love. And the way David talks about Michael and being 16 years old, and, and that first sight of him, that, that the sight of his back, and just how... That welt on his back stuck out to him. Not just the beautifulness of that male back that he was seeing, but he saw that welt, and that's what he identified with first. And I identify with that. My dad used to belt as well. But the memories and the grace and the dignity with which he embraces the memory of that love, even though they weren't able to spend a lifetime together, a lifetime of memories he has held on to so beautifully, so beautifully and poetically spoken with this Hear Me Out. So I really thank, thank Steve and, and thank you to Ann Stockwell for producing this senior storytelling competition. And thank you to Steve Pride for sharing this with us. 
The recognition of yourself in another is both beautiful and tragic in many ways. The memories that you can carry with you from that first love are something to hold on to and cherish forever. Hear, hear. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, we'd love to have you. Please email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And you can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good night. Good night.